hello and welcome to the Silver Linings Podcast. I'm still your host, Scott Stevens, and the greatest part about having your own podcast is that there's no one else to fire you. So here we are. I'm really excited for you to hear this interview with an old friend of mine, Molly Williams. She admits right at the end of this that this was actually the first time she'd ever shared her story like this in any sort of public setting. So it was really remarkable for her to be so willing to come on and do that. She's been through some pretty traumatic life experiences, but credits a lot of them for where she is today. But I will let her tell you the good parts of everything that she's been through. Here is my conversation with Molly Williams. Okay, we are here live with our next guest, who is Molly Williams. Molly, thank you for uh, coming on and doing this podcast with us. You're welcome. Um, so Molly has a really interesting story we're going to get to here. Um, and by way of quick introduction, from my side of things, me and Molly actually go way back. Uh, we knew each other all the way back at high school. Um, so we're coming up here on 15 years or so um, of being friends and such. And um, we've been through a lot, known each other a lot. Um, and Molly has a really interesting story. And we lost touch, I think, for a long time, just as you do as you grow grow up and get older and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. you actually live just down the street from my brother and his wife. And so we kind of reconnected and got the chance to do this. Um, so I'm going to let her, though, answer the same three questions we always do by way of introduction. So Molly, those will be, uh, who are you, what do you do, and what happened to you? So go ahead. I'm Molly Williams. I'm a happy wife and a striving slash growing mother of one little girl. I'm someone who believes that we all have a purpose here on this earth and that we're meant to accomplish great things and live life to its fullest. Um, What do I do? Mostly I run around trying to keep up with my daughter, Sage. Um, When I'm not doing that, I'm designing landscapes. I'm a residential landscape designer and I love spending time outside and catching a good movie. Most recently, I just graduated from a yoga teacher training, so I don't have a job teaching yoga yet, but technically I'm a yoga teacher, so I'm going to claim that. Um, Also, what happened to me, it didn't really happen to me. It happened to my first husband. He passed away in an avalanche. So to answer your question, I think I would rephrase it as what happened to me after the accident. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, great answers, Um, and hopefully that gives everyone a taste of what we're going to talk about now. I guess first things first, the answer part about being a yoga instructor. I mean, this will be a quick shout out for anyone out there looking for to hire a new yoga instructor. (laughs) Molly Williams is going to be your person, apparently, right? So a little plug in there uh, for your personal and career life aspirations there. Um, So we're going to get into this a lot of it, and you know, a lot of people don't know someone that has been in an avalanche and done that, and it's you know. Here, both of us having grown up in Utah was something we're more like, I guess, familiar with because, mm-hmm. you know, skiing in the mountains and you and your family, I know, are very outdoorsy people, mm-hmm. right? You guys grew up skiing, I know, mm-hmm. doing all sorts of stuff in the mountains mm-hmm. and things. So this is something you, you're a very outdoorsy person, right? Yes, I'd like to claim that. <laughs> <laughs> Although, um, if you talk to people who know me really well, I can watch two to three movies by myself in a movie theater. In a row, consecutively. Oh, yeah. Just, like, sneak in one to the next. I probably shouldn't 
confess that. Uh, just apologize to your mom and your dad. <laughs> they raised you right, I I'm think. I'm pretty but... sure they all know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One ticket's enough. It's 10 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I subscribe to MoviePass now. Oh. So I pay a monthly yeah, thing and get to go to that, which I don't go as much as I should. So maybe they're making money on me because <laughs> I go to like one a month max. It's <laughs> hard good, with, with kids, but yeah, right. I mean, I don't, you don't get to go to the movie theater as much as you used to, I think, but true. Um, so yes, I'd like to say I'm outdoorsy, but I can also be a really good hermit. Yeah. 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 Netflix <laughs> has done that to all of us. I think. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, but you're right. I, so I grew up skiing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up skiing at the resort. I'd never really skied in the backcountry before. I'd always wanted to, but just didn't have the time or money to get into it. Yeah. But when I married Garrett, my uh-huh. first husband, he was really into it. And so I was able to get a setup and take an avalanche course. And I started going out touring with mm-hmm. him and a bunch of his friends. Yeah. Touring. So explain touring. Cause I think a lot of people, if you're not an avid skier or backpacker or mountain person, that might be a totally foreign word. Cause it's like to me, a touring, what like vacationing, sightseeing, <laughs> what is, what is touring? Mean? Okay. So, uh, touring would be, and I'm probably going to sound a little uneducated here to people who can explain <laughs> then you it can really keep it. Well. You can keep it very surface okay. level. It's just, it's skiing outside of the resort. So you use skis that have bindings that your heel can release. And then you put skins on the bottom of your skis and those skins act kind of like, um, sandpaper against the snow. So you can skin or slide or walk Mm -hmm. up on your skis. Gives it that traction that you need. Yeah. So it's basically hiking on your skis up a hill. And then once you get to the top, you take your skins off and click in and you just ski down like normal. Okay. So Garrett, your first husband, Mm -hmm. he was very outdoorsy, right? I mean, you were, you grew up like this, but he, he was definitely yeah. A mountain man, right? Yeah, he was. He what rock climbing was Garrett's thing. Okay. Um, he was a huge climber, and then I think the mountaineering side of him was what led him to get into um, backcountry skiing. Mm-hmm. He was actually not a very good skier. <laughs> like I could just <laughs> school him down the mountain, yeah. but his knowledge of the outdoors and his touring experience was was greater than mine. He had not been touring very long either, but he was with people that had trained him well and they knew what they were doing. Yeah. So he just something you guys would go out and do a lot. Yeah. You'd, you'd done this a lot of different times. Yeah. Like we would do dawn patrols in the morning, like wake mm-hmm. up at four 30 and meet some friends at the base of big cottonwood Canyon and mm-hmm. go ski a couple laps and then come home and he'd go to work and I'd yeah. go to school and, um, or we'd take like all day Saturday, one Saturday we left at like six or seven in the morning and got home at like nine at night. Cause we drove to Alpine and, skinned up to Lone Peak yeah, and skied down. Okay. So we had some big excursions that, um, not to fool anybody, like I whined most of the way up. (laughs) (laughs) Like it was not, I, I, I only toured because I loved, I loved the peace and quiet. I loved being outside, but mostly it was so I could just rip down the mountain after. Yeah. Yeah. The fun part. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. The fun part. Mm -hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about how old were you guys? You met Garrett in college, right? So yeah. for a timeline perspective, so everyone mm-hmm. understands this, and yeah. when you guys got married, how old were you at the time? Um, so I met Garrett in 2008, which would have been okay. 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, I served a mission for the LDS church. Mm-hmm. And when I returned home, I married Garrett in the middle of the year in 2010. Okay. So July of 2010. And you knew him before, right? But You know, not really. I mean, I had kind of known of him in okay. high school. He yeah. was pretty elusive. Yeah. Uh, but so no, I, I didn't technically meet Garrett till 
I was in college and I met him through some friends and we met at the climbing gym. Oh, okay. And then we went on a climbing trip together and just mm-hmm. fully fell in love yeah. like right away. Yeah. And then, so then when we get to the actual day when this finally happened, you guys have been out and done this. Uh, he's obviously educated in it, you know, mm-hmm. well-versed in the mountains. So it's not like you guys are up there being total noobs and no. you know, not knowing and just being reckless or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, how long had you been married when this when the event started taking place? We had been married a little over eight months when the avalanche happened and okay. when he died. So we're less than a year yeah. at that point. Yeah. Okay. So do, let's do like a quick version then. I mean, tell me a little bit about what happened, what you remembered and stuff like that and what the experience of something like that is actually like. Okay. We, uh, we have some friends that have a house down in Spring City. It's near Manti. Okay. And so the goal was to go into the LaSalle Mountains. And one of our friends um, has a connection with Piston Bully, which is a snowcat manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So he got a snowcat for us. And we slept at our friend's house in Spring City on Thursday night. Woke up Friday morning all piled in the snowcat and went, I don't really know how far it was. I think it was like 10 to 20 miles into the backcountry. Like oh, wow. you could, you can't access it unless you're on snowmobiles or a snowcat. Uh-huh. Okay. So we went up to this place called Horseshoe Mountain and it's this big open bowl, like the shape of a horseshoe. Mm-hmm. And that was our objective. We were going to ski there. So some of us were chilling in the snowcat at the top because it was pretty cold outside while the other half of the group was at the top of the run they were digging pits to assess the stability of the snow and it had kind of been um a weird snow season anyway this was 2011 Mm -hmm. so we weren't really planning on skiing it the goal was just to like i mean we wanted to ski it yeah but of course we were going to assess how safe it was dig the pits yeah so when you dig a pit you're digging down into the snow so you can see the different layers and see how stable it is because different snowstorms are going to bring... If there's a hard layer underneath or something and then all the fresh And then a on soft top. one, yeah. you know, and I, like I said, I'm not an expert. Yeah. Um, but so I was not digging the pits. Like mm-hmm. I was just hanging out with some of the girls and we heard this huge clap. It sounded like a clap of thunder or like a gunshot, just like so loud and we we didn't know what it was there were three of us in the snowcat three three girls and then one guy and he knew exactly what it was and he was like you guys that was an avalanche like get out get your skis on turn your beacon on and like we've got to assess the situation so your beacon is a device that you wear that helps you to track the other people that you're skiing with. So if you are in an avalanche and you're buried under the snow, you can use your beacon to find them. They can track you. Yeah. With that. So what is the clap noise then? What caused them? It was them the snow testing? breaking. Oh, so it, that's the sound of it just naturally breaking. Yeah, that's like the natural break from the mountain. Mm-hmm. And is that something that they, as they were digging the holes, that caused it or it just naturally broke on its own? Um, that's a really good question. That's why you dig a pit uh-huh. because... If the avalanche is going to happen, it will probably happen when you're digging the pit. Yeah. Well, it's the same reason. I mean, if you've ever been to ski resorts, they, when they shoot for avalanches, yes. right? They, yeah. They shoot this thing up into the mountain to try and, if anything is ready to go, it would like break it up and loosen it up itself, exactly. right? So I imagine it's a yeah. similar kind of so thing. So that's what we were doing. So basically, uh, the men who were digging the pits, Garrett was one of them. Mm-hmm. He was with two other friends. They had assessed that it was unsafe and they were climbing back up. 
So you just barely go over the ridge line so you can dig a pit. So they were working their way back up. I don't know how far up it was, mm-hmm. um, but not super far. They had decided it wasn't safe. They were working their way back up. And as they were climbing up, the avalanche broke. So it was a big, huge slab avalanche, which mm-hmm. means like the fracture line was the whole length of the mountain. Wow. And I don't remember all the details, to be honest. I've blocked a lot of this out, but I want to say it was something like 3,000 vertical feet, the slide. Oh, wow. So it slid all the way down to the base of this run. And two of Garrett's friends were caught. One of them was fully buried, but Mm -hmm. he was able to punch his way through the snow so he could have an air pocket at the bottom. The other friend was partway buried up to his knees or his waist um and then Garrett was fully buried we couldn't find him Mm -hmm. so I've obviously never been in this situation in fact I had just taken my avalanche class the week before yeah um but it was level one there's lots of levels you can get to and mine was very basic Mm -hmm. so I and and when something like this happens you're just in total fight or flight mode like so I had no idea how to approach the situation and to get from the top of the mountain to where the slide had happened was like a 10 foot drop because it was such a big fracture like you had to jump 10 feet down on your skis to even get there Uh so it was like all this adrenaline there's no way i would have been able to do that in a regular situation but my friend and i were able to do that and we got out our beacons and started skiing down and tried to follow um the signal on our beacon Mm -hmm. And because did, and did the three of them all have beacons as well that yes, were going? Yes, everyone stuff? had all the gear. We all yeah. everyone had their beacons on. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know that they slid all the way down. Like it was so far that yeah. we couldn't even imagine that they would have gone all the way down. Yeah. So we kind of were scanning the mountain further up until we realized that one of our friends who hadn't been buried that he was all the way down at the bottom. And this is like really hard skiing like imagine skiing on boulders like the chunks of snow are like they're just so big they're like big huge boulders the snow has gone through the avalanche and Uh then hardened so it's really difficult you can't just like cruise down down. yeah and i'm a pretty good skier and it was not easy for me to get there so by the time we got to the bottom our two friends had already gotten out and they had found garrett and they were starting to dig garrett out Mm -hmm. and garrett was So he was fully buried. He was face down. And the only thing we could see was his ski boot. It was orange. Yeah. So we could see it. That was out a little bit. Yeah. That was out of the snow. Um, And just to give you an idea, like Garrett is, he was six foot seven. Big guy. So super tall. Yeah. Uh, It was obviously very startling to see him like that. And we started digging and it, it took a long time. Like I said, like I'm probably not accurate on all the yeah, details of uh-huh. how long it actually took because for yeah. me being his wife like just a little it was, nervous about everything yeah super intense um but we all took turns digging i helped dig and when we got him out he i think he was dead like his eyes were open his face was blue like he wasn't breathing really? and so his friends started performing cpr and at this point i've gone into like complete shock you know uh-huh. i'm like unable to process anything so being that we were so far into the backcountry, we knew we were in serious trouble as far as getting help. Yeah. So one of my friends, 
he helped me to gather my wits and we got our skis on and mm-hmm. we just started skiing down. It was because it was back up in a canyon. It was kind of like you just follow the drainage and eventually yeah. you'll hit dirt road. Uh-huh. And I think we skied like 15 miles. I don't, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully he's not listening to this and being like, Molly, <laughs> that was wrong. Yeah. If it is, I apologize. But we skied for a long time. And I remember while we were skiing, hearing the helicopter come. So Life Flight was able to make it. One of our friends stayed at the top of the okay. mountain uh-huh. on purpose so she could have service, so she could call Life Flight. Oh, okay. So, so she's she, looking, at least you could call out from there. Yes. But at this point, there's a storm rolling in. Oh, and man. it's not easily accessible. So we just have no idea when help is going to be there, if they're going to be there, how they're going to get there. And so I just continued to ski with my friend. We skied down as far as we could till we got to the car and then we drove to his house, the one in Spring City. And when we got there, we waited to connect with what was going on with search and rescue and we drove to where search and rescue was. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't very far. I mean, it was up a dirt road um, at a place that was still accessible. Yeah. And we just waited. So the helicopter was then life flighting each one of our friends out from the base of the run. Okay. There was, they just, it was just a waiting game, right? Like they just got people out. So I think during that time, I believe my friends performed CPR on Garrett for like close to 15 minutes Uh and they got him breathing again. Oh, okay. Um, but I mean, we learned later that the the brain damage had already been caused from, from lack of oxygen for that long. Yeah. Lack of oxygen. So So maybe before they even got him out, I mean, that's what I think. Do you know how long that... From when the avalanche started to when you guys mm-hmm. found him, you have any idea? It could, I, mean, I mean, I I would guess just a few minutes. Okay. Um, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, but I mean, even just a few minutes, oh, the yeah. brain not getting oxygen at that point mm-hmm. is that you start getting into critical territory. Yeah, definitely. So they life flighted Garrett out. Everyone else was safe. Uh, there were no injuries to our other two friends, at least that I know of. Yeah. Maybe there were, but yeah. they didn't mention it because uh-huh. it seemed insignificant at the time time. and Garrett was life flighted to uh well he was put in an ambulance I apologize I didn't like go over all these details in my head well I'm sure even as you said though I'm I'm sure there's a part of this that you just like yeah you've you have maybe just blocked out I think I blocked it out and it honestly is weird to say it out loud because I don't feel like it actually happened to me Hmm. it did but I think I just um I've moved forward from it. When you say that, do you mean like that it, it almost feels like a, a story someone yes. told to you now? It totally right? feels, it feels like a story. It feels surreal and it feels weird that it could be my story because where I am right now in my life is a good place. I'm stable. Yeah. I'm happy. I'm accomplishing things in my life. I've started my family. Yeah. And it just seems weird to describe the frail person that yeah. I was in yeah. that moment. How long from that? So you get, he eventually gets to the hospital though. Yeah. Like how long? Was, so the was avalanche still... happened at like 10 or 11 in the morning. Okay. And he got to the hospital at 11 at night. Yeah. And then from there he was life flighted okay. to Utah County hospital. Got it. So we drove from the Manti area to Utah County. Mm -hmm. And so we got there probably at like two or three in the morning and he was immediately taken into, um, 
critical care. Yes. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember yeah. what it was called. And uh, they intubated him. And we just kind of were waiting to yeah. hear what the doctors would tell us. Yeah. So I just remember waiting in the waiting room. And at this point, like my mom and dad were with me. They had okay. driven down to Spring City. I was in the car with them. Like I remember following them in the car behind the ambulance, like mm-hmm. following the ambulance. Uh, and then I remember driving and getting there to Utah County Hospital. Was there any hope at that point that things that things could well, turn around, or is it is it pretty pretty dire already at that point? So when we got to the little clinic, and I feel so bad. I I think it's San Pete County. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I know that the search and rescue team did an amazing job, and actually a lot of money that would have been given to Garrett when he passed away was donated to the San Pete Search and Rescue because they donated so much yeah. time and energy and resources in mm-hmm. this search and rescue. So when we got there, um, that's when like it really hit me and they like brought him in and put him on the bed and they cut all of his clothes off to get warm blankets on him and yeah. they innovated him. And I think I thought there was maybe a little bit of hope but um, I, yeah, I don't know if that was because of what the doctors had said, yeah. or if I just was like, okay, like now he's here, like we can take care of him. But I just kept holding on, right? Yeah. Like, okay, so from here, then we're gonna life flight him. So I just, yeah, one I just step kept at holding. a time yeah. or something. And, yeah, I mean, and, and until they probably say like that he is gone, yeah, right? Until they pronounce him, yeah, dead. Like mm-hmm. there is still a reason to hope because you just For never sure. know. Crazier things have probably happened. Yeah. Definitely. And I do remember like when we dug him out, when we, when we dug him out of the avalanche, when I saw him, like I thought he was dead right then. Like I remember like, like evaluating that and then immediately brushing it out of my mind. Like, no, he's not. No, he's not. There's no way. Like, and the whole way down skiing, I remember, um, just saying to myself, like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And I was just like repeating over and over and over again. I think it was the shock, right? I'm I just sure, like didn't uh-huh. know what to do. And um, I think I, I knew. I think I knew that it was not going to end with him yeah. making it through. Yeah. But I wanted to hold on to that. So when we got to Utah County Hospital, or Utah Valley Hospital, sorry, UV, I don't know exactly. Yeah, Utah Valley Hospital. Yeah, Utah mm-hmm. Valley. Um, when we got there, we were in the waiting room. So at this point, my family's there. Uh, Garrett's family is there. Some friends are there. And uh, the doctor came in, I don't know, sometime in the middle of the night and pronounced that he was brain dead. Mm-hmm. And it had been as a result of the lack of oxygen to okay. him when he was buried. So uh, they were just, um, he was on life support. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. And then did you have to, was it up to you then to make that decision to mm-hmm. eventually pull the yeah. plug on that? Yeah. It was really, really horrible. I mean, I was 24 years old. Mm-hmm. We'd been married for eight and a half months. Yeah. I hardly knew Garrett's family, you know? I mean, we'd only spent that... I'd only spent eight and a half months married, married. to Garrett, let alone like a handful of Sunday dinners and family gatherings. And I didn't know Yeah. the dynamic of his family. I didn't know what I should do. You know, I felt this responsibility as his wife, but I also felt too young and immature to make decisions of this gravity yeah and i just uh remember dropping to my knees i went into the bathroom and dropped to my knees and prayed 
so hard. I, I, I took, I bargained with God. I was like, if you, (laughs) I laugh about it now, but, uh, I was like, I promise I'll never ski again (laughs) if you'll just save him, you know? And in that moment, like it was a really big deal because I've skied my whole life and I didn't know what would be good enough to bargain with God, right? Like, Hey, this is like a really big chip here. I hope this is enough for you to be like, okay, she's going to get rid of her skis. Like I'll save her husband for her. Yeah. And, um, I just remember just praying so hard. And I know that in that situation that I was fully supported by angels on Mm. the other side. Yeah. Cause there's no way that I would have been able to make the decisions that I did with the confidence that I had without my family and friends there and without help from the other side of the veil. Yeah, I'm sure. So, Mm -hmm. because I mean, at that point to be, and like you said, you've, you've, you have moved on and you're in a better place now, which is great because I think it helps look back and change the perspective a little bit and do that. But do you remember too, I mean, eight and a half months married, mm-hmm. you're thinking at that point, I mean, you're starting your life together, totally. thinking this is just the beginning. You're making plans for the future, like mm-hmm. imagining growing all together. Yeah. And it, it just feels like that is ripped away from you. Mm-hmm. Like Completely. that must've been just a, a hard pill to swallow Oh yeah. at the time. That's an understatement. Yeah. I mean, my reality was completely shattered. Mm-hmm. I was head over heels in love with Garrett. You can ask anyone that knows me well. Like I was just so infatuated with him. I completely had lost my identity. I was just Garrett's wife. Like <laughs> I just loved him so much and uh-huh. admired him so much. And the adventures that we had had together up to that point were just all-consuming like we just had a very passionate love and a passionate relationship Mm -hmm. which is also something that is really special to look back on and remember that even though our time together was short it was passionate and packed full of adventures and amazing experiences together absolutely but that so that's not the end of everything because then that's just, I mean, if anything, that's just the beginning partly of where your story is now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you do in the days, weeks, months, years, even like Mm -hmm. that follow? I mean, what, what do you remember and what did you do to pick yourself back up and Mm -hmm. try and get back to a semblance of a life that you could call normal at that point? So, uh, the avalanche happened on a Saturday. Okay. By the time we'd gotten to uh, Utah Valley Hospital, it was the middle of the night, Sunday morning, early mm-hmm. Sunday morning, and he was declared dead Sunday morning. Okay. And then I had to go through the process of deciding to donate his organs, and uh, I remember having social workers there to help me with this. You know, like yeah. I was the only one that could make that decision. Yeah. So once that happened, I was able to kind of get out of the shock and the fight or flight mode right because since the avalanche i just had like bam 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 one thing after another to tend to like Uh go here go here do this do this so then we we went home and i still had to make decisions right i had to decide uh when the funeral would be i had to pick out his casket Mm -hmm. i had to write his oh i didn't write his obituary but you yeah. know there were details in the obituary, all the planning, that, yeah. You know pictures that, and then the whole planning for the viewing and the funeral, and so I was actually very busy, which was a blessing. Probably helped. Yeah, and the rea- like the gravity of it, did not set in until I put him in the ground. Really. Yeah. 
And then like, I got home. I got, well, I got, I went home to my parents' house. Mm -hmm. I didn't go back to my apartment that day. Yeah. I did go back later, but I got home to their house and just sat on the couch and was like, what now? Yeah. And just complete, just, uh, shock. Yeah. I know I've said that word a lot, but that's really the only way to describe what I had been through. Like it was so unexpected it was an accident. Yeah. So there was no way to There's control no preparation. it. Yeah. There was no preparation other than what we had all prepared for just to be able to tour and ski in mm-hmm. the back country. Mm-hmm. And so after that, um, it was a really long road yeah. of, I mean, you kind of, did you become like, did you just hibernate a little bit yeah. and become a hermit I became in a, a sense? Total, yeah, I became a total zombie. I just remember people coming in and out of my parents' house over the days and weeks, bringing meals and flowers and asking how I was. Like, yeah. I just remember, like, I couldn't even have conversations with people. Like, they would be talking like we are, yeah. but I would not, I didn't process anything. I don't even remember, probably for the first six months, I don't recall very many details. Yeah. It was just such an acute phase yeah. of grieving Mm-hmm. the loss of my husband yeah mm. absolutely at what point then like when did you start to feel like they i can see a light at the end of the mm-hmm. tunnel i mean mm-hmm. what at what point were you like okay like this still sucks yeah <laughs> like because that's the other thing like it doesn't mean the pain goes away when you start yeah. to get better yeah but maybe even the way you've described it like it starts to just get lesser yeah right that you yeah. you start finding other good things to mm-hmm. focus on and, mm-hmm. and maybe even a sense like other things to keep you busy yeah because hearing you talk about it, it really, it really reminds me of how much like a like a, a bored mind or a mind with nothing to worry about or focus on, mm-hmm. like that can be the the biggest enemy sometimes yeah. because you get lost in your own thoughts, yeah, and you just you, you think about all these different scenarios or what could have been sure. all this stuff and you start to feel sorry for yourself, yeah. So sometimes it's good like to have something to pick you back up. What sort yeah. of stuff? I mean, or at what point did you start feeling like, okay, like I need to at least do something, otherwise yeah. I'm gonna stay in my parents' basement for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah, and do that. Or maybe you thought, basement. maybe you thought that was, that's, that this is it for me. I'm, I'm never oh leaving. I don't know. No, I remember I was staying in one of their extra bedrooms and just thinking like, how did I get here? This is the biggest digression of my life. Like get married, move out of the house. Husband dies, move, move back, back in. into the yeah, house. That's, that's no one's like, plan that they thought they were going to be on in life. No. So I just took it one minute at a time. Like not even one day at a time, literally one minute at a time. And the days were horrifically long. Mm -hmm. I dreaded going to bed at night and I would just stay up because I didn't want to go to bed because going to bed meant that I was going to bed by myself. Mm. You know, there Garrett wasn't there. And so sleeping was nearly impossible. I was prescribed Ambien and I think I was on it for about six months because I just couldn't sleep. I mean, something that traumatic, it just flashes in your mind and you can't Mm -hmm. fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And so think like, you know, like Ambien, I went and saw a therapist Mm -hmm. who I still see today, seven years later. Yeah. Uh, She helped me to start kind of processing things. And so I just take it one minute, one hour, you know, then one day at a time and I would choose one thing right like my one thing would be that I was gonna get dressed that day yeah and sound it sounds so silly mm-hmm. but like I would just not get dressed yeah. right I had nowhere to go I was so grief stricken it didn't matter or my one thing would be that like I was gonna eat something that day 
and I, you know, I lost so much weight. I lost mm-hmm. sleep. Like it was just a, a really sad time for me, but also for my family and those who loved me and cared about me. I know that they tried to yeah. help me and they tried to be there for me. And I think I probably made it really difficult. Really? You know? It was almost hard for you to let them mm-hmm. in, let them yeah. serve Cause you. Because I just was so angry. I was like, yeah. there's nothing you can do to make me feel better. All I want is my husband back and you can't give me that. So I think it made it really hard for them. Yeah. And I'm really grateful that they didn't run away. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. Well, it's important. I mean, and that them. is one of the, I mean, again, there's, you never want to go through something to get there. But it is moments like this when you do realize how crucial it is to have those people in your life, whether yeah. it's family, friends, whatever, like yeah. that they're there for you regardless of what happens, regardless of how you feel or how you treat them. Yeah. I'm sure like your parents, especially, right? Who, sure. who watched you grow up, raised you and everything. They know yeah. who you are inside and out. Mm-hmm. They know that even if you're snappy with them or something, like yeah. we're there for you. It doesn't matter how, if you treat me poorly or something like that, like they're going to keep trying to be there for you. Yeah. And I know your parents. I know Margie. Like she, you know, she's the greatest, and yes. and just uh, like would do anything for you guys. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. my parents were for sure uh, my foundation mm-hmm. through that time. They supported me, and they didn't judge me, and they gave me my space when they needed it. They were there when I needed it. Uh, I found ways. Like I said, I just would pick one thing a day, and then I found things that would bring me peace or solace. Or just like a brief glimpse of happiness. And one of those was Garrett's grave. And I would go to his grave all the time. And I would go there and I would journal. I would write Hmm. in my journal and I wrote about the experience. And then I wrote about my feelings and I would write letters to God about how angry I was and how confused I was and asking questions of why did this happen? How could this happen to me? Like a normal girl who's done her very best in life to live a life that God would be pleased by. Mm -hmm. Like, why did this terrible thing happen to me? So the journaling helped me to start processing and just slowly, bit by bit, I was able to put one foot in front of the other. Did you point, and I'm sure now, obviously now you have a better perspective, I think, on it. At that point, do you look back and you remember, I mean, did you feel like you had any sort of positive answers to that sort of stuff and you wonder like did you see anything that had good had come out of it yet or were you still searching nothing at that point I was still searching I I had uh I had a friend who had a connection with an apostle of the LDS church Mm -hmm. elder Richard G. Scott Mm -hmm. she so kindly set up an appointment for me to see him this was about one month after Garrett had died Okay. I didn't know what to expect and frankly I didn't really want to go but I was grasping at straws and even though I wasn't praying at this point because I was so angry that Garrett had died I felt like this was an opportunity that I should take and was probably God showing some love even yeah. though I was mad <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was able to meet with Elder Scott and he basically what I took away from that scenario was that and he did not say these words, but what you took from what it. I took mm-hmm. away from it was that it was not going to do me any good to keep asking why hmm. this had happened or to ask the what if questions like what if we would have found him sooner or what if we didn't go at all or what if he stayed at the top of the mountain and didn't dig the pit, you know, like so many questions. Yeah. And Elder Scott 
just said those will lead you down a rabbit hole. You'll never find any peace from that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, he said that and he said you should be asking what am I going to do about this? And what does God want me to learn yeah. from this? And I was so mad hearing him say that. <laughs> like, like, no, I want the answers. Uh, I I'm know. like, I don't want to learn anything from this. Like, I don't want this to have happened to me. Like, yeah. I just was not, I was in the denial phase. Okay. I could not accept it. I was denying it. I couldn't accept it. So that was for sure the beginning of planting that seed of learning to move past the why and the self-pity and the grief, the really acute grief, and to start to say, okay, why did this happen? I don't know. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do about it? Yeah. Like, where this is where I am, you know, so why did this happen? This is where I am. What am I going to do about it? Like, what now? Which is such a... uh interesting perspective and a way to look at things because it's for whatever reason it feels like it's human nature when anything bad happens to us from an avalanche to just oh i don't like i lost my keys you know like, why like why right now mm-hmm. we i mean you're never gonna get the answers to why yeah. right like those just don't come yeah. and i wonder why we as humans do that and yeah. ask and, and yeah. then reimagine this the scenarios of oh if i had just done this differently because like until time machines are invented, like we're not going back and changing that, yeah. you know, but I do love hearing that it's, it's a reframing of that question in your mm-hmm. mind of what, mm-hmm. what can I learn from this or what can I do now? Like, because that's, I mean, that, and that really succinctly sums up everything that this podcast is about and the people I've talked to and from the inception of this, like it really is about the bad things are always going to keep happening to us. That's just part of life, but it's what you do from that point once they've happened we can't Mm -hmm, change it mm -hmm. what can you do as a result of it what positive can you bring out of it Mm -hmm. even if that it's not about well i needed this to happen to learn this about myself like it's more just about we're at this point now like all we can change is the future we can't change the past Mm -hmm. and as hard as that is to realize and accept like you said like you're angry at first after he told you as you're saying this isn't what i wanted you to say to me yeah like i didn't leave there feeling happy i was like well, that's that. Yeah. Like, but it probably, as it being a truth, the more you sat with it, the more it probably just kept coming back to you, right? Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, I did not have the mental capacity at that point to ask myself that question. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do about it? Like, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I was just surviving and I was just putting one foot in front of the other. And I didn't really put that into action until I met... Ben, who's my husband now. Oh, okay. And he was the one that really got me to ask the question of what now? Interesting. Was well, that's a really fascinating like sequence of events so that's, yeah. you know, yeah. needing to know who you was going to be in your life or what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. How far down the road was that when you reconnected with that Ben? Because you guys was... hadn't been, you knew Ben from before as well. Yeah. But yeah. you guys weren't like, you didn't stay in touch, did you? Or... No, no. Ben also went to Skyline High School. He okay. graduated the year before I did. Uh-huh. We knew, our friend groups knew each other, but okay. we did not mm-hmm. hang out or anything like that. So we reconnected two months after Garrett died. And it would not have happened unless there were weddings that month. So it was the month of May. Wedding, wedding season in Utah. Yeah, I was... Oh, it's like killing you now. It was so, so terrible. A heart, I'm sure, even a, a very much more poignant reminder each time you went, right? Yeah. And also going along with, you know, being able to move forward, 
um, I often had to say, looking back, how will I feel if I don't go to my best friend's wedding? Yeah. You know. You'd regret that. I'd regret that. So Mm -hmm. even though it was the most miserable thing in the entire world to put on a dress and go to the LDS temple to Mm -hmm. watch my friend get married, I knew that it was important to her and it was important to me to show that even in my time of grief, I could still support the people who've been supporting me. Yeah. So anyways, at these weddings, um, my two closest friends at the time married Ben's roommates. Oh, okay. And for sure, I don't think that was a coincidence. Mm. I believe this has been divine orchestration. Part of a purpose. And that God knows me and knew that if he didn't look out for me after Garrett died, that I would just like go down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. So uh, Ben was at those weddings and I was pretty aloof, but he is super friendly. Yeah. And he would like reach out and sit by me or ask me how I was doing. And so the friendship kind of started two months after it wasn't till probably six to eight months after that we started dating uh, and then fell in love and within a year we were married yeah which you probably didn't see that coming as well absolutely not i like had vowed to never marry and that i was just going to be like an <laughs> awesome aunt yeah i had nieces and nephews mm-hmm. i did not want to go through falling in love again because yeah. it was just so painful to lose someone i just was like i've I already married the love of my life like I don't need to do that this again. That box has been checked. Yeah. And then as I kind of started to uh, get out of that acute grief, I would say things like, well, if I do get married again, it will be someone that's not religious at all. So I don't even have to deal with any of that hoopla. Yeah. What I don't understand about uh-huh. the church or whatever, yeah. the LDS church. Uh-huh. And uh, it would slowly, you know, I'd slowly change it. And then when I met Ben... That's when the question, what do I want to do about it, really came into play. Because here I was, this is now six months. So it's just such a short, short time, right? Like yeah. I I was starting to have feelings of love again. And mm-hmm. they were terrifying. And I really wanted to like turn and run the other way. Yeah. And I just thought, okay, like this is what happened to me. And it's not gonna change Mm -hmm. and I'm still here like Garrett died I'm still here I'm alive and I'm living and I'm only 24 years old what am I gonna do and so when I met Ben and we started to fall in love I was like I'm gonna go with this I'm gonna put my faith in God and I'm gonna trust him and I'm gonna I'm gonna choose to get married again and it was a choice yeah well it's probably something whenever we go through a hard thing you know a breakup even or you know when people go through divorce something like that or this, losing a husband for whatever reason. It seems like in those, through the hard things, that you need these little positive moments to start moving on. Yeah. You needed something. And it was Ben, is it, it, two months after, just as a friend. Like a total... Friendly conversation. Light like in my life. Just, and Ben is, you know, for those who don't know, like he's just a bubbly person. Like I don't even know Ben that well. You know, but like every time I talk with him... He makes me feel like I'm the most important person. Like yeah. Just, you know, That's he asks really questions and I'm like, I don't even know how you know this about me, but like <laughs> you are, are kind enough to ask and, mm-hmm. you know, just always. And what my brother tells me about him, like obviously you guys being neighbors. Yeah. Same thing. They have yeah. nothing but positive things to say about him, mm-hmm. which that feels like that's part of this whole web of, of plans and things like that, that yeah. it probably couldn't have just been anybody to make no. you happy. But Ben being there, mm. being the person that you needed at the time. Yeah, absolutely. To help give you that like little ray of hope mm-hmm. and that you start feeling like, Oh, I, maybe I can be happy. Again. Yeah. 
You know, Ben is exactly what you're describing. He's one of the kindest people I know and he has the biggest heart. And sometimes he gives so much of his self and his time that he um, forgets about himself. You know, Mm -hmm. like he doesn't take care of himself because he's trying to take care of other people. And at that point when we were dating and trying to move forward, uh, he was just, he had such great faith that this was right and that Mm -hmm. this would work. And so we made that decision together to get married. And, you know, after we decided to get married, it was not easy. I mean, I was still, he married a widow. Yeah. I was still grieving Mm -hmm. the loss of Garrett. Was that hard for him? Do you think? I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. He never really showed it. Uh He was very compassionate and understanding and would give me my space when I needed it. Um, But I believe that it, would yeah. have been hard. I mean, put yourself in that situation. Yeah. You well, know. It's, an, it's just an extra challenge as well. I mean, marriage For is sure. a change for most yeah. people. Yeah. There's times when I do that with my mm-hmm. wife where I'm like, we just you don't yeah. see eye to eye for whatever reason or yeah. this, but like I came into the marriage with so much baggage, yeah. you know, just being, having to work through the loss of Garrett. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. That must've been an interesting part to deal with it on that. Yeah. But it's interesting too, because what you said about Ben is that he's one that just likes to serve yeah. other people and I think mm-hmm. service is something that is a is a probably one of the most effective ways to deal with grief too that absolutely you forget about what you're feeling and yeah. worry about the needs of other people yeah because even hearing you say what initially got you to Ben was forgetting about your own needs and being there for your friends which is mm-hmm. not service in the That's sense of what you think about it but like yeah. hearing you describe it that. that you were like it's not about me how bad would I feel years down the road if I didn't go to my best friend's wedding right you know, and it's like mm-hmm. you were literally doing a form of service mm. and that maybe that was something that opened up your heart, which led maybe. you to Ben. I don't know. It was. Yeah, that's I, I actually did a service trip six months after Garrett passed away. I went to Kenya. Uh-huh. I went with an organization called Kenya Keys. Uh-huh. My friends, aunt and uncle started it and you technically had to have some sort of reason of going like (laughs) medical skills or teaching skills and I think I was like the poor widow that they let come along because I'm like you were the charity project for the charity project exactly right (laughs) so I went to Kenya for a month and it was another huge part that shifted my perspective because I met people in the most humble of circumstances children who had lost their parents when they were three years old, you know, and both their parents were gone in their orphans or children that don't get to go to school because of the result of their parents dying, they had to work, Mm -hmm. uh, or women who'd lost husbands and it was their third husband. And that actually was when the idea of marrying someone kind of started to settle in me because I would tell my story and they'd be like, Oh, you'll marry again. (laughs) Well, especially at 24. Oh yeah. And I was like, what? How can you say that to me? But they were able to say things that no one that knew me could say because they didn't know me and their culture was so different. They hardship is such a normal thing for the people that I was spending time with Mm -hmm. and they get through it and move on. And I think other people at home knew I would get married again. Right. But my mom's not going to say six months after I'm widowed that, Oh, it's okay, Molly, you'll get married again. (laughs) Like I would have, done something really bad i would have been really mad yeah absolutely (laughs) well and it probably helped the perspective things because then you go to a country like that where they deal with day-to-day problems that Mm -hmm. are hard which you know not to diminish because losing a husband to like death is always the worst case scenario in almost everything Mm -hmm. right but they're facing like 
but then at least you were here and you didn't you know didn't have to worry about where your next meal was going to come from or having mm-hmm. a roof over your head yeah seeing probably people in different circumstances probably helped open a whole new world of yeah of love and of charity and things totally. like that totally and it helped me just get out of my self pity you know mm-hmm. like being like oh my gosh i'm i'm 24 and my husband's dead like i'm the only person in the world that's going through this right now and it just helped me realize like i was not unique there are so many people who Maybe they have not experienced what I did, but like I said, who are going through things that are just as challenging mm-hmm. um, and cause just as much grief. And yeah. I was not an anomaly. Yeah. That's the one I think I always wish that there was a better way to learn and understand without having to go through trials, Agreed. without having to go through sorrow, yeah. like to get that understanding and mm-hmm. love and empathy for mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Because it's all, and I just honestly think it's sometimes the only way to really understand what other people are going through or to at least recognize that other people are going through stuff as hard as what we go through or Mm -hmm. close to it or something or maybe harder. Yeah. You have to go through it yourself. Yeah. Because then it puts you, it's almost like that you're more aware of it, right? Because you feel that, that sorrow. Yeah. That all of a sudden you're looking for it. It's like you put in, there's a new filter on the world that you start seeing things through. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like you don't understand what it's like to be a parent till you have a kid. Yeah. And you totally like rip on your friends who have kids like, Oh, they never hang out. <laughs> and then you have a kid and you're like, Netflix. I'm never going out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just changes. And then I yeah, know amount of people telling you that can help you learn that you just have to learn through experience. Mm-hmm. So my next question then is, with Ben now in your life and mm-hmm. as you got ready for marriage and, mm-hmm. and look towards that, mm-hmm. I mean, what is that like to think about loving someone new in the same way that you loved Garrett? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's, again, it's a different circumstance. It wasn't yeah. like you, you and Garrett went your separate ways and this was just the next step. This was, you still loved Garrett. Oh, absolutely. Garrett will always hold that place I still for you, right? Him. Yeah. It's not like mm-hmm. that goes away. Mm-hmm. It was just, it just ended. Yeah. What's that like to have somebody else come in and occupy basically a new space yeah. in your life and in your heart? It was very scary and I was very protective. And I had a lot of walls built up even when Ben and I got married. Um, it was very difficult for me to let Ben in on the details of my grieving because I didn't want to be his bride that was grieving about her previous husband Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to burden him with that and so I dealt with a lot of it by myself and it was very lonely and there was a lot of guilt associated with it you know thinking like why am I still missing Garrett when I'm married to Ben who loves me and I love him and Mm -hmm. we are building a wonderful new life together um, but just over time, like I said, you know, looking back, it's easy to like make myself sound amazing. Like I was able to do this, <laughs> yeah. but I wasn't so much of it was just, uh, survival, you know, and just instinct and also divine guidance and relying on God. There was a moment where I gave up on him after Garrett died and I was so angry. I wanted to just throw the whole relationship that I had with him mm-hmm. out the door. I didn't, I wanted to stop going to church. Yeah. And I wanted to stop doing all the other things that uh-huh. were religious in my life. Um, but I never did because I knew that my life would not get better mm. if I just dismissed God. Yeah. So 
because I hung on, just clung to the little hope that I had that God did love me, even though this horrible thing happened. He really helped me to work through those feelings and to open my heart again, right? To have, I really feel like I was blessed with Christ-like and God-like love Mm. to be able to love again. It was given to me. That gift of being able to love again was given to me. And as I continued to open my heart and let Ben love me Mm. and let me Mm. love him, our love grew and continues to grow. And like I said, like these have all been choices and decisions. It hasn't just happened. Like I've made the choice, like I will marry Ben. I will love Ben. I will choose to be a happy, loving wife every day. I like, yeah, I try to do that still. Yeah. (laughs) We've been married for almost six years, but, uh, um, they were choices for both of us. Yeah. And that over time, just it got easier and easier to love Ben and my heart is full of love for him and now my daughter yeah. Sage uh-huh. uh, there's still always going to be Garrett in my heart there's yeah. always been I, I will always love Garrett yeah I have a different love for him now yeah that I'm married to Ben yeah uh, and I know that if you let yourself you will always be able to love again yeah when I think you actually explained it to me before this was like it's a little bit like when you have a child and you understand how you can love a husband and a child mm, equally yes, and great yes, yeah. as much at the same time, but it's, it's different. That was something that, you know, when we, we chatted before this mm-hmm. and stuff that I was just like, that's an interesting thought because I didn't understand that mm-hmm. because I wasn't, you know, I'd never had been married to two people mm-hmm. and it's, it's not the same. But when you said that, I thought, well, that is, I can, you can love people differently mm-hmm. and love them equally. Yeah. At the same time. Totally. Which, you know, we both only have one child right now. Yeah. But, I, you know, I imagine the same thing. Like, with my brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. I know my parents love this all equally. Mm-hmm. Um, at times, maybe they like one of us better or worse based <laughs> yeah. on who's throwing a fit or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you can do that. Do you think your marriage to Garrett, though, like having gone through it once, even if it was for a short amount of time, is there anything with that or even with this whole incident that prepared you better now for your life as a mother or as being married to Ben? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, like I said, mine and Garrett's marriage was, uh, there, we just were two people with great big personalities and opinions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we clashed. Yeah. Other times we'd come together and just have these amazing experiences and moments. But I think because our relationship was such a short, intense amount of time that I, learned a lot of things in that amount of time. I learned that marriage is hard and you, you can't just give up on it. It like, like I said, it's a choice. You have Mm -hmm. to choose how you're going to be with your spouse every day and what you're going to do and how you're going to serve them and how you're going to love them. I think I learned that, you know, that marriage is hard. And when I marry Ben, it's still going to be hard. It's going to be different, but there's going to be hard times and I'm going to move through them and work through them. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything yeah. else. Well, I almost wonder too, it's just a matter of appreciation too, that you know what it's like to have loved and lost. For sure. Yeah. And so does that help you appreciate every day that you have with the husband and daughter yeah. as well? Like, yeah. because you know that like the way life goes and mm-hmm. you hope for the best, but like any given day accidents can happen Totally. and there's nothing you can do to prepare for that. Yeah. All you can do is, 
live your moment or live your life in the moment and yeah. appreciate every day that you have as a gift. Yeah. And I and when Garrett died, I made a decision to live my life fully. And mm-hmm. I kind of mentioned that at the beginning of who <laughs> I am. You know, I believe in living my life to its fullest. Yeah. I think that I believed that before, but after he died, it was just concrete, you know, like that life is precious and that we could lose our life at any time. Mm -hmm. And so we should live it fully so that when we do, there's no regrets. Yeah. And I think I've shared, I shared that with you before that I, I don't have any regrets. Sure. I have many little regrets of things I've done, like yelled at Sage or whatever, you know, (laughs) like every day we have little things that we can improve upon because we're not perfect. But as far as the choices that I've made since Garrett died, going to school, getting married, having a child, buying a house, I have no regrets. And I attribute that to Garrett's passing. Mm. And I, I'm profoundly grateful for that, that I was able to take that to say, okay, what do you want me to learn? And that was one thing I learned, right? Mm-hmm. Was that our life is a gift. Yeah. And it's been given to us, I believe, from yeah. God. And we're only here for who knows how long. Yeah. So we should do what we want. Yeah. I think we should do what we want. I think we should also do what we should do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Well, and do things, things for other people, too. I like, think I we think... should do things for other people. And I think we should focus on living a life of happiness and passion and yeah. and serving others because yeah. it is really what makes your life full is serving the people around you and yeah. then being served in return. Yeah. Well, it's true though, even what you just said and in your story is a great example of you can hate what you went through mm. but still be grateful for it, mm. right? Like you can still yeah. never want anything like that to come upon you or anybody else mm-hmm. ever again Yeah. while at the same time understanding like you might not be where you are without it. It's part of who you are now, probably, right? You're right, I mean, yeah. It's a part of my story as much as I don't... Again, it happened to Garrett. You know, this yeah. is Garrett who lost his life. You're still yeah. here. Yeah, but you're right. Like, I, I, I've I, struggled with that over the years in knowing how much of his passing has made me who I am today. Mm-hmm. And I can't quantify it. I, I think I wouldn't be where I am had I not learned the things I learned when he died. Yeah. And I can also say if I didn't learn anything and I wallowed and I kept my anger and I held on to it, I would not be where I am today. I would not be happily married. I would not have a child. I would be a sad, angry person. Yeah. And it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, as much as I want to say that that is and was the hardest thing that will ever happen to me, I know better. Yeah. I know that there's going to be way more trials in my life. Yeah. And I and I have faith now that trials make me stronger. In fact, it's actually not even faith. It's knowledge. Like mm. my faith has come to a full knowledge because of where I am. Like yeah. I'm a living example yeah. of that faith. Like if you believe and if you if you act, you know, if you put action behind your words, that you will learn from yeah. it and you will become a better person mm-hmm. and you'll have a bigger heart 
and you'll be able to love more. Yeah. And you were brought to the depths, right? I mean, you were absolutely. It's probably as low as you thought you could be. Yeah. The lowest. uh, And you, you hope that nothing gets there, but at the same time, even if it's not as severe as death or something like that, I feel like as humans, it also feels like whatever we're going through right then feels like the hardest thing. Absolutely. And even if you're never going to come out of it, even if you don't have a second avalanche in your life, you know, literally or, or metaphorically, Mm -hmm. like it's always going to feel like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. This Mm -hmm. is the hardest thing ever. Mm -hmm. And that's just a matter of everything we see from our perspective based on where we're standing from our own point of view. But, uh, there's no real way to judge that. I agree. I agree that it will, I know that anything else that comes up in my life, whatever it may be, knock that wood, I don't (laughs) even like saying this out loud. (laughs) I know that I'll get through it. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I rebuilt myself from the very depths of sorrow and I didn't do it alone. Yeah. And so I know that whatever I go through in the future, that I'll rebuild again, you yeah. know, and you continue to rebuild and grow and recreate and readjust. Yeah. And I think that that is the greatest blessing I could have taken away from yeah. this experience in my life is that we we can and always will grow from challenges. Mm-hmm. Is there anything now that, if you were to go back and give yourself the piece of advice, a younger Molly before all this, something you know now that you look back and go, I wish I had known this mm-hmm. beforehand. I mean, some of the stuff you've probably already already touched on, just a matter of perspective and mm-hmm, stuff. But mm-hmm. that, that kind of always seems to bring it back to like, what are the things through all of this that we learn greater than anything else? That mm-hmm. if there was one thing that, that Molly has on her tombstone that, you know... Mm-hmm is what she's remembered for or the way she lived her life or things like that. Mm. What, is, what are those type of things? So much pressure. Like what I'm going to have <laughs> on my tombstone? Just I just a feel like that's, a lot of times that's but... a way to think about it though, right? That yeah. like when people think Molly Williams, what comes with that? I almost said Molly Barker I know. is, is yeah. what I knew. It, the bee started coming out of my mouth. Molly Williams. Um, that, you know, it's something you think about. And that's the inception of this podcast. Our first episode always goes back to my friend Jeff Brown who died in a yes. hiking accident. There yes. was a lot of similarities in the story mm-hmm. um, between Garrett and Jeff. Mm-hmm. And I now know this. Is, it's an experiment, and I've thought it through. They just actually finished laying his new tombstone down there oh. after the winter and things like that. That's really cool. And he had this conversation um, with one of his friends that she had called, she used the words to describe him as genuine and sincere. Mm-hmm. And he said to her, and we have a text about it, he's like, those are, you, you couldn't have said anything better to me because like those are the two words I would want on my tombstone. Yeah. I feel like those, if, if people remember me as being genuine and sincere, mm-hmm. I then I feel like I did something right. And now they, they put that on there, like his tombstone now, like Jeffrey Keith Brown, it says genuine and sincere under there. And it's like, mm-hmm. when I saw that recently, I think maybe that's why this is coming up. It's fresh on my mind. Yeah, yeah. That I'm, I, I just think, you know, what is it we're remembered by? Mm-hmm. And I think it's our challenges and our trials mm-hmm. that shape us to become who we are and the, and the, the, you know, the story that we leave behind mm-hmm. is based on those things that we've been through. Yeah. Um, it's just something to, to always think about. Yeah, I think I would... I would and you don't hope, have to literally tell me what's going to be on your I'm tombstone. Not, but. Well, it's going to say this. Uh, no, I think I would hope that I will be remembered as mm-hmm. a brave, 
and courageous woman who was faithful and inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I laugh saying that out loud because I <laughs> am not that right now. Yeah. <laughs> I try it. Like I said, I'm like a striving mother that's just like yeah. barely keeping a house <laughs> together. Um, but I know that everything in life has a time and a season. And if we live that time and season fully, it will make our life that much more meaningful in the end when we move to the next time and season. And we kind of talked about that with kids, but Uh yeah, I just think, you know, and maybe looking back, like if there was one thing I would say to myself, it would be to, uh, be a little bit more compassionate toward myself Hmm. during that time of reconstruction. I was very critical on, am I grieving the right way? Am I moving too fast because I'm getting married again within one year? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was just very easy to criticize, like even three or four years down the road, why am I still crying? Why do I still miss Garrett? Like, yeah. you know, all of these things to, I wish I would have been able to give myself the advice of like, do not judge yourself in the grieving process. There's no amount of time mm-hmm. that will heal this wound. And time may never heal it fully. It will just change your perspective. Yeah. And it will help envelop that experience into your life story rather than something separate. It just folds in yeah. to part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me pulling out as I as I everything we've talked about, the one that jumps out to me the most is is when you said though that it's not about asking why bad things happen to us. It's about asking what we can learn from it. Mm-hmm. Don't ask the why, ask the what. Mm-hmm. Is something I think to me is like a lesson I will be forever changed by hearing mm-hmm. that perspective as a way of summing that up. Yeah. Um, and it, is there anything else you think from this whole story that you want to share or, or, or a, mm. a lasting piece of advice or knowledge that you can impart on all of us? Well, no, I do not have a lasting bit of knowledge, but I do have... Uh, gratitude in my heart for being mm-hmm. able to share my story or my experience mm-hmm. and to let people know that they're not alone and to let people know that I know they're more than what they seem to be on the outside. Mm-hmm. Especially for me, uh, I would think it's easy for people to look at me or see me in church with my husband and my little girl and think they have a great life (laughs) hopefully they think that Um, (laughs) but there's so much more depth to a person Mm -hmm. and you have no idea what anybody's going through and so to just keep an open heart and that compassion that I mentioned I think that that has made my life much more full much more doable and it helps me to live a life of gratitude. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's such a great perspective on all that for you to be able to start identifying and have already started identifying all these silver linings that are all around you mm-hmm. because they do happen on a daily basis. They happen in everything, yeah. great or small, um, positive or negative mm-hmm. experiences. You know, we can find good that comes out of everything. Um, so thank you for being willing yeah. to come on and share this with us. I know, You're welcome. I don't know that you've shared, you know, the, the depths of a lot of this. I have not, I have never, I've never told that story out loud mm-hmm. to a public yeah. 
gathering. Yeah. Or, I guess this yeah. is not a gathering, but <laughs> a digital gathering. Yeah, I've ne- I've never you said know. it. Yeah. I've never said it out loud. Which can be hard, and I understand mm-hmm. that. You know, it's it's always hard to do that, but I think everyone will will benefit from hearing it, and you know, be yeah. able to take something away from it, and something even when you said you talked to to Richard G. Scott about this, he probably said certain things. You pulled something totally different that he might not have said out of it, right? True. And you never know when someone's sharing their story that what they needed to hear wasn't the words you or I actually just said during this. It might be something they feel. And, you know, but hopefully we can all be uplifted and edified um, by doing that. So thank you very much for for coming and sharing, Molly. This has been another episode of the Silver Linings Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Molly um, once again for letting everyone learn from her story. For any new listeners, you can check out our website at silverliningspod.com. And if you want to get in touch or share anyone you think would be a good guest for the show, we always love meeting new people and hearing their stories. So feel free to reach out through that website. You can also find us on Instagram at silverliningspodcast where we share a little bit more about each of our guests with pictures that go with each of these stories that you hear. That's all I have for you today. So thanks again for listening and talk soon.